I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's sponsored insight is Finney Curavilla, the co-chief investment officer, founding member, and healthcare portfolio manager at Eventide Asset Management. Eventide is a Boston-based firm that oversees $6.5 billion and brings a distinct values-based approach to investing across generalist and healthcare strategies. We discuss Finney's path to founding Eventide with $100,000 in capital, the firm's mission-driven, values-based philosophy, which by the way, they started long before ESG was a known acronym, integrating values with the investment process, and what success means in the years ahead. Before we get going, I'd like to tell you about my relationship with LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn as a way to communicate broadly with many followers of the show. The idea of using it came a number of years ago when my friend Brian Portnoy told me that his most liked tweet ever was when he said, my favorite part of LinkedIn is getting endorsed for skills I don't have by people I don't know. Since then, I've accepted every follower request that's come in, which has led me to 22,000 followers and 10,000 connections. Now, I don't know 22,000 people and I'm not actually connected to 10,000, So as much as I love sharing what we do on LinkedIn, the messaging feature throws me for a loop. I get about a half a dozen messages a day. One of those is usually someone writing broken English who guarantees to be able to expand our audience by 100,000 new followers in a week. In case you're wondering, I didn't give money to that Nigerian prince reaching out over email either. Almost all the other messages are from fans of the podcast offering warm thanks, and I love getting each one of those probably one or two a day, includes a pitch to appear on the show. I'd say about one person a year initiated through LinkedIn messaging makes it on the show, so that one in a thousand hit rate isn't very high, but we do offer every inbound a chance to apply for our sponsored Insight series. Almost everyone who messages asks me for my time. As you can imagine, it would be next to impossible for me to do what I do and accept those requests. Fortunately, in thinking about this spread the word, I found an auto-reply feature on LinkedIn, which now includes links to our mailing list, premium membership, and sponsored insights application. I rarely get a chance to read the messages that come in, so I'm glad at least now I can respond to everyone while practicing the art of saying no. Stay tuned for next time when I'll share what I'd actually like to say in that out-of-office response. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Finney Curavilla. Finney, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Why don't you take me back to your upbringing as a path to how you got into investing? I'm the son of immigrants. My parents came to the United States in 1973. I was born and raised in Southern California, and it was a fairly typical immigrant rags to middle class type story. So a lot of living hand to mouth, having to pinch pennies. And I remember 
we didn't have enough money for retainers and braces and all that. And so we found a guy who was happened to be as a part of our church, who was the technician who knew how to make a retainer. And he kind of snuck us in the back office and we got into the world of orthodontics through that. But the real lesson that I learned from all that was from my mom. My mom started off working at Bank of America as a teller, and she ended up working her way up to being a vice president at B of A. But in particular, one of the things that she did was she started to invest and talked often about the power of compounding and how compounding over time can get you something like a deposit on a house that you can one day hopefully purchase on a mortgage. My parents did it. And so I was just an observer there, but it made a huge impression on me so that when I one day would go off to medical school, I called up my mom and she was still my financial advisor, so to speak. And I followed her playbook and that really brought me into the world of investing. So you go from this early interest in investing, then you mentioned medical school. So what was that educational path? I did my undergrad in California and graduated in 1995 and came to Boston to do an MD-PhD program. So it's a combined program where you do two doctorates. My PhD is in chemistry. The nice thing about the MD-PhD program is that they give you a stipend. So you don't have to pay them to go to school, which I still think is absolutely amazing that you can get paid to go to school. The stipend at the time was around $10,000 a year, which I was single at the time. That was more than enough to live on, even in Boston. And I had a little bit left over. And so my mom said, hey, you should start to invest. So I looked at the options in terms of mutual funds that are available and discovered that I couldn't really bring myself to invest in those mutual funds, primarily because you can see the top 10 holdings when you get their fact sheet. And I could see tobacco companies, gambling companies, things like that. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to participate in that type of investing. So I almost threw in the towel, but my roommate at the time, he was doing his PhD at Harvard in economics. And he gave me a couple of Peter Lynch books. And he said, you should really read these books. I didn't actually know who Peter Lynch was at the time, but he became my mentor via books. The basic line that Peter Lynch hammers home is that there's a few disciplines you need to learn in terms of accounting and some basic knowledge about investing. But the real edge that you can have to beat Wall Street is if you have deep domain expertise in a field. So he would use this expression, buy what you know. And so that made sense to me. And I thought, okay, I know something about the world of biomedical and healthcare. And so why not start investing in that? And so I did and just started doing individual security selection in the mid-90s. And that became my hobby over the next 10 years going through med school and residency and fellowship, where I just fell in love with the markets and this whole discipline of taking all the beauty and the innovation in healthcare and integrating that with the business world and then marrying that to investing. So it was the confluence of all those that got me into the world of investing. When you spent all of that time getting educated to become a doctor, at what point in time do you say, oh, I'm not going to practice. I'm just going to become an investor. One of the things that's very interesting about the trajectory of medicine is, so you spend many, many years in training. You do in my case, eight years of the MD-PhD, and then three years of residency, one year of a fellowship. You're going through all of this, and you think you know what it's going to be like. But one of the great 
ironies of life is that we fall in love with the idea of something, not necessarily with the thing itself. And the idea of something can be very different than the thing itself. And so it's always good to keep sober and to be flexible because you can't really know too well what things are actually like until you're actually doing it. And I certainly enjoyed my years in medicine and I'm very grateful for that. But one of the realities of medicine, and my physician friends I think would agree to this, is that once you hit the pinnacle of your training, it actually becomes quite repetitive. It becomes something where you know one little slice of medicine very, very well, and you end up just doing a lot of pattern recognition again and again to deliver that care to patients. And that's not a bad thing. And I think it's something that I'm very grateful that a lot of people are content in those roles. But there's a certain type of person that craves, and I'm in this category, constantly learning and growing and stretching. And I always say I use more of my med school now than I did when I was actually seeing patients as a resident and a fellow, because you'll go from thinking about lupus to diabetes to oncology all in a day. That's one major reason. The second was a lot of the patients that I happened to take care of had some form of blood disorder. So that included leukemia, lymphoma, conditions like that. And you quickly realize when you are taking care of those patients that a lot of the good stuff is happening not within the halls of the hospital, but at the biotech companies across the river in Cambridge. One of my stats that I like to share on this is that if you had a child in 1970 with leukemia, he or she would have about a 10% chance of making it to adulthood. So pretty grim odds. Today, if you have a child with leukemia, he or she will have closer to a 90% chance of making it to adulthood. So a complete reversal in outcomes there. And that is on the back of the work of thousands and thousands of people. But a lot of it comes from these biotech companies that are financing these trials. And one great innovation, you can help more people than you could help in a lifetime of seeing patients as one-offs. If you want to really be able to maximize your ability to affect patients, then moving over to something on the, say, the biotech or pharmaceutical side, you're actually more likely to have a shot to actually impact an order of magnitude or two more than you would seeing patients individually. Once you had those thoughts in your head, how did you actually make the transition and do it? I had never done any formal study of accounting or business or anything like that. I was basically just a self-taught investor by reading books. And so it wasn't an easy move there. And I applied to a variety of jobs and frankly got turned down by most of them. But there was a firm in Cambridge called Claris Ventures. It was later acquired and became Blackstone. They found me through a common friend and they offered me the role after some interviews. I wish I could say it was my cleverness that got me the role, but it really wasn't. One of the nice things that venture capitalists are pretty good at is they're good at realizing that sometimes we have nonlinear paths into careers like investing, and they're willing to take a bet on someone who they believe has an aptitude or a talent there, even though they may be more raw or untrained. And it was a fantastic firm. I learned so much there, and I'm very grateful to the folks there for taking me under their wing. But then in parallel, what I did was said, okay, well, I want to try to raise some capital here for potentially starting my own business. And so went to just friends and family and said, here's an idea. What if we were to put together a company that would 
take the concepts that I have been honing over the years in terms of applying some basic screens to what we invest in and then creating a product that would especially serve values-based or faith-based investors who want to try to get a good return from their investing in ways that are compatible with their values. And so went around to, as I said, friends and family and raised about $800,000 of just business capital to get the company going. And we launched Eventide in the summer of 2008. Our mutual fund opened up in July of 2008. And so had these two parallel tracks going. So on the one hand was working at Claris Ventures in the venture capital side, but then working with very, very small dollars at the time. Our mutual fund, as part of that 800,000, we put 100,000 of it into the actual fund itself. So it was managing a pool of capital of about $100,000 and learned how to run a mutual fund company while I was working at Claris Ventures. At what point in time did you move full-time over the public side at even time? It took about eight years for us. So we were an unprofitable company for our first several years. And so it was not financially feasible for me to come aboard full-time. So in 2016, I made the jump and went full-time into Eventide. And what's Eventide today? Eventide today is a Boston-based investment company that offers mutual funds primarily across a variety of asset classes to investors who want to be in alignment in terms of their values and their investment portfolios. We have a little over $6.5 billion under management across eight funds. And I happen to be a portfolio manager on two of those funds. Our first fund called the Gilead Fund, which is a go-anywhere fund that's a best ideas type fund that integrates our values with our investment process. And then a dedicated healthcare and life sciences fund, which primarily invests in small and mid-cap healthcare companies. So this integration of personal values and investing, something you hear a lot more about today, but something you started a long time ago. How did you frame out the values that you would then impose on your investing? That's a great question. First is the question of, do people want values in their investing? And it's not obvious that everybody even does. It's growing in popularity. But first, you have to have the conversation why values. And you can think about this from a couple of different dimensions. First would be on the negative side. So certain areas you want to avoid. That's really important. And it's something that I don't think we think enough about. We sometimes use this analogy of a mafia wife. She's got the fur coat and the diamond rings and living this very lavish life. And she knows that something shady is going on on the other side of the door, but doesn't want to ask the hard questions because she's got the great lifestyle. And I think a lot of us can fall into something like that where we're we're participating in lots of investments and we don't want to ask too many hard questions because maybe there's things we don't really want to know are actually happening. But that's not a comfortable place to be. And I hope more people want to be more holistic and integrated and just have a sense of peace there with their values. But then on the positive side to say, okay, business should be this amazing agent of provision and helping the world solve its major problems. And that's an exciting vision for business that I think we've lost. One of the tragedies in the modern world is that business is often portrayed as adversary, as something hostile. So we think about the Occupy Wall Street movement. We think about all that happened with the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Usually in the movies, the business guy is the bad guy. That's really unfortunate. 
We have chosen to try to reclaim a vision of what business could be. We really believe and are excited in business and its potential there. And in terms of the specific values, we have embraced a value set that we summarize with the love your neighbor principle. So that is found in almost every major religion. And the question then becomes, if we're trying to love our neighbors, well, one, who are our neighbors? It's not so obvious if you're a business in Boston. Is it just local Bostonians? How do we think about that? And then what does it look like to actually love them? Love is a squishy word, and people can use that in ways that are, frankly, kind of empty and meaningless. And the specific instantiation of values that we use is, I would say, this broadly Judeo-Christian set of values that we believe are true, but certainly, even if someone's not a Jew or a Christian or a religious person, we still think that these values are right. And one of the really interesting concepts that I have been fascinated by for 20 plus years is this notion that just like there are principles or laws in the physical world, you know, the law of gravity, the law of electromagnetism, are there ways and principles that our world is fundamentally structured in where if you operate in the grain of those principles, then you're actually going to do better in our world than if you're operating in opposition to those principles. So the analogy that we like to use is, say you're a NASA engineer, is it an advantage if you believe in a round earth or a flat earth? And of course, everyone would say, you hope that the NASA engineers believe in a round earth. And similarly, we would try to make the case that there's a whole world of future gains that can be harvested by people who understand the fundamental fabric of how the world works. And if you can get a better perspective on reality, how businesses work, what it looks like for long-term success, how the basic moral structure of the universe functions, then you're actually going to be advantaged as a portfolio manager. It's really at the heart of what Eventide is, is that doing the right thing is actually going to lead to better results and better performance. What have you articulated as what those universal values of how the world operates that can ultimately result in better performance? That love your neighbor principle is the headline there. And it's asking the question for a given stakeholder, for a given neighbor, and so we would use neighbor and stakeholder nearly interchangeably, would that particular stakeholder or neighbor walk away and say, I was advantaged or I'm somehow better off because of this business? So first, let's talk about who the neighbors are. And we have made the case that each business has fundamentally six neighbors or six stakeholders. And it's easy to remember, we have this acronym CES squared. There's three internal and three external stakeholders. So the three internal are customers, employees, and the supply chain, CES. And then three external communities, where the business is located, the environment, and then broader society. So that CES CES framework represents who the neighbors are. One of the great challenges that I think business is facing right now is we are very, very good at measuring financial capital. We have lots of powerful tools that can give us insights into what capital is doing in a financial sense. Where we are much worse off and still, I think, in the early days of thinking, what do other forms of capital look like? that are non-financial. So the word capital comes from the word caput, which means head. And it refers to originally heads of cattle. 
and it originally referred to particularly means of how you could transfer animals from one place to another. But increasingly, it is being recognized that the standard Milton Friedman notions of what business should be doing, it's at least incomplete. And there are other forms of capital that we don't do very well at measuring. So capital, again, heads, right? Employees, people out there, those are real forms of capital. And in fact, they're literally capital, right? We literally have heads more so than just money. And right now, our tools and our metrics are very poor at knowing how is a business doing in terms of are we in the red or in the black with respect to, say, the environment or supply chain or something like that. And so if we can kind of reframe this question and say, okay, we're trying to add value in a real legit way to all of our stakeholders as best we can, then we have to be able to measure that. The thesis is that those types of businesses that are creating value for its stakeholders will outperform over the long haul in general, those businesses that are focusing only on one form of capital, i.e. financial capital. I'd love to turn to how you apply those values articulate your investment philosophy for investing in this space. I am very thankful for the ESG movement. I'm glad that they're raising awareness, but they're also creating a lot of confusion. And in fact, sometimes they're actually just not helpful at all. In fact, sometimes I think they can mislead people. One of the reasons for this is that what's happened in recent years, there is this almost obsessive focus on a certain type of metric there, say, diversity metrics are highly emphasized, which diversity is a great thing. Rainforest policies, a lot of emphasis on disclosures, things like that, that companies often, when you look at the main providers of these databases, you get crazy results. I'll give you an example. So we have often marveled that Philip Morris, which is a widely known provisioner of cigarettes and tobacco, rates more highly on many of these databases than on companies that are actually trying to treat lung cancer. And you look at these and you just think, what in the world is going on here? Have we lost any vestige of common sense? And I think we have, frankly, because what's happened is there's not good thought about, okay, disclosure is a good thing, but you're going to favor large cap companies that have huge offices that are going to just crank out all these CSR reports. What does materiality really mean? What is the product actually doing? You know, these are very fundamental questions that are easy to throw away. And in all of the zeal that people have had about ESG, I think it's good intent, but misguided in the sense that people are prioritizing things that don't make a lot of sense. And we're just getting off base with how we even think about what a business is actually doing. And is it a truly admirable, good business that we'd be excited to support there? So It's a very confusing world. Specifically with healthcare, there is a temptation that many people can fall prey to, which is forgetting about some of the fundamentals of what you should be doing when you look at a business. Okay, so a lot of biotech, unfortunately, is based on taking something that's already out there and tweaking it very, very slightly, changing a few atoms here and there in order to get a patent worth 20 years of life and then going to market there with an incremental benefit that doesn't add a whole lot of value to society, but then wanting to charge $300,000 per year. And people just, I think for good reason, aren't so excited about that. And those are the kinds of questions that the standard 
ESG type metrics don't really get at. You need a human who actually understands what's going on here in terms of value creation. Is this actually adding value in terms of the patient's lifespan? Over standard of care, are you truly saving the system money that is roughly commensurate with the kind of charges that you want for your particular medication? These are very, very fundamental questions that often are neglected here. And so we like to ask these questions early on and upfront. Basically, is the value that is being created by this, is that fairly represented by what you want to charge there? And it's not an easy exercise. There's a lot of work that goes into that. But that's the type of thing that early on we want to be asking. We tend to be less interested in these me too's, these slight tweaks here and there. We're also less interested in products that are going to be just pandering to aspects of human vanity. There's this whole aspect of aesthetics, which it's just somebody selling a variant on Botox or a lip filler or something like that. There's billions and billions of dollars of that that happens in healthcare. That's not going to be exciting. We're looking for something that's actually going to advance human flourishing in a meaningful way. So that would be the starting point to how we do our healthcare investing. So it sounds like you're filtering out investment opportunities. How do you then take that universe and start to decide where you want to dive in? We use a framework that we call avoid, embrace, engage. So avoid means we don't invest in these problematic areas, tobacco, pornography, gambling, et cetera. Embrace means we're trying to find positively the companies that are adding the most value, we believe, to its stakeholders. And we believe those will do the best by shareholders as well over the long haul. And then that third element, that notion of engage, is now that you're in the company and we're often a top three shareholder, sometimes number one, have a unique position of authority and you have the voice of the company in a way that many other people won't have. Avoid is in a lot of ways, the easier step saying no to a bunch of things. The harder part is finding what is excellence really look like in a particular company and how do you know who to put your dollars with over the long haul. There we have a framework that we have applied. We use a set of checklists here at Eventide that we try to keep our hands pretty broadly over the whole universe. So there's roughly 500 publicly traded biotech companies in the United States And it's hard to keep up with 500 companies, but we've got, thankfully, a good team of people that do a good job of knowing the high level there. And what we are looking for here is what are some of these therapies or innovations that are coming down the pike? They're going to be substantial increases to value creation to the system. Certainly, we want to do that. And then we're going to use these concepts. We call that Business 360 approach, where we're looking at these six stakeholders try to get a total view on what's going on with the company, looking at the six stakeholders, the CES. But then what you've got to do is the hard work of asking the question of, okay, where is there true value to be found? And this is where I would say that any good investor, no matter if you're a values-based investor or not, you need to have a very high degree of competency in your field to be able to do the hard work of just assessing, okay, There's a clinical trial that's being run. Is that clinical trial likely to succeed or not? It's roughly a flip of the coin at a phase three study. A little bit like in baseball. So like, hey, like an average major league baseball player, they'll probably do 250 or so. If you can do 350 in the major leagues, you're going to be an all-star. That's pretty awesome. It's the same thing in our field here, where if you can be even 10% better than the average, then you're going to be an all-star because these events tend to be so dramatic. So companies can go up two or three fold, 
100%, 200% moves overnight or get crushed, you know, lose 70%, 80% overnight, depending on the outcome of those trials. And so you've got to be very skilled at doing roll up the sleeves, really good science and medical work there. And so we've got one of the best teams out there of scientists and physicians who know how to analyze clinical trials. We go to the medical meetings, we know our management teams really well, and we're just assessing what is the quality of these assets and how is the market priced or mispriced those assets in the share price. There is no substitute for being a great, solid, fundamental investor. And really what the values represent is a guiding light or a compass so you know what to be aiming for that is going to help you to get hopefully even better returns over the long haul. What are the types of companies that fit into your sweet spot? We'll look at industries that are the intersections of secular growth, so long-term secular growth themes, and then these companies that are advancing human flourishing. So if you think about a Venn diagram there, we want to find long-term great areas. So like an example would be orphan diseases, Alzheimer's. I mean, these are going to be huge, long, multi-decade themes. They're going to be really, really exciting. And then asking the question, some of those are promoting human flourishing. So is sports betting doing that? Probably not. So we would exclude, even though that might be a great growth theme, it's probably not advancing human flourishing in ways that we could all feel really good about. Once you have that intersection of the right industry with an industry that is advancing the common good, well, now you've got a set of companies in here and you want to try to find the ones, according to this Business 360 philosophy, that are adding the most value to its stakeholders. That's that crucial step that I talked about. And then, of course, then you got to do the roll up your sleeves, fundamental due diligence, build a model, do a DCF, figure out what it's actually worth relative to the share price. So broadly speaking, what we're looking for is that intersection, but then within that intersection, where is there mispricing? And again, often mispricing is a function of these values. There was a very, very interesting study that Russell Fuller did as part of his doctorate where he made the case that there are these three forms of alpha that portfolio managers and allocators should be aware of and seeking out. So the first one he said was informational, where you know more than somebody else and you're trying to get some kind of advantage in terms of, say, estimating earnings. This is a classic example of where a fundamental manager would be playing. Then there's an analytical type of alpha where you're using quantitative strategies and you're trying to identify a factor that's going to outperform. The third type of alpha he talks about is a behavioral alpha, where the most famous line here is from Buffett's, be fearful when everyone's greedy, be greedy when everyone's fearful, where you can do better than most people if you understand the behavioral biases and foibles that we humans have. But I think he missed the fourth form of alpha, which is this values-driven form of alpha, which admittedly is long-term. I think the best studies out there would suggest that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 3% annualized alpha that the market hasn't captured, well controlling for size and market cap and all the standard factors there that is to be harvested. And so we would try to make the case that if you can find those intersection points and then use that fourth source of alpha, which is the least appreciated form, then you should be able to do really well as a fund manager. How do you think about integrating your assessment of management teams in that framework? That's a great question. And one of the things that 
I learned in my eight years of venture capital was the single greatest asset or liability of any company is its management team. The challenge for most investors is that management teams are selected because they're good presenters. And there's very few CEOs that aren't very talented presenters. He or she can get up at a sell-side conference and wow people with how amazing their company looks. And so how do you really discern what true management excellence looks like in a world where even if you meet management, you're going to walk away thinking like, wow, this is a great company. It's really hard to do that well. So often what people fall prey to is the fallacy of receiving and taking at first value charts that are handed to you. So we all know there's a cherry picking bias and anybody who's published anything knows that you can choose the axes or get the data in such a way that it looks really good. So the real challenge that we have as investors is to build up almost from a bottoms up perspective and to say, okay, if I didn't have all this data over here and I was just trying to reconstruct in my own ways using my own much more dispassionate, unbiased forms of analyses, what would I land at? And that actually is one of the most powerful tests for management integrity that you can find. It's really that gap between how they present something and how you would present it if you were, again, this disinterested party that wasn't trying to sell shares in the stock or something like that. If you can do that well, you will have a really good ability to assess a management team. That's number one. Number two is I don't think we put near enough attention on how people have actually used their previous roles to contribute or detract value. So a lot of people, they'll say like, oh, they worked at Tesla or they worked at Biogen or they worked on such an... And like, they just assume that there's a credit that person should get by virtue of being associated with some really exciting, amazing company. But as we all know, if you've worked in any company of any size, success has a lot of people who want to claim it, but there's actually in the end a much smaller number who genuinely contributed to it. And it takes a lot of work, a lot of back channels, reference calls, networking, all that to figure out what really that person truly contributed in terms of value generation. I would boil it down in saying that the management team is certainly the most important asset or liability, and it's worth a lot more time and a lot more creative forms of analysis to really understand how good they truly are. One of my major annoyances is when an analyst will meet with a management team, they'll come here to our office in downtown Boston, and you'll say, how was management? And they'll say, great. Why? Well, I like them. And you get that so often. I like them. Pay attention to that. How many times people will say, I like them. And they're just speaking to chemistry. That's all that it is. They're speaking to some kind of feeling they get. And that feeling is a complicated result of charm, beauty, eloquence, all these factors that don't really, in the end, correlate very well to, are they a great business person or not? How do you integrate your fundamental work management assessment into making decisions about what names will go into your portfolio? We'd like to hope that We're finding the best management teams, but it is certainly the case that there are fewer great management teams than there are companies. There's a lot of biotech companies that are run very poorly because management is just not very good. And so what you want to do is you want to try to identify those teams that have 
that dynamic combination of history of value creation with the right gifts and the right skills that are working in tandem and complementary one to another. And as you find those management teams, you grab hold of them and don't let them go. It is a rare find to find those kinds of companies that really are there. So when you find them, because they are so scarce, you want to concentrate as much as you can on those types of companies and let them compound over time. What do your portfolios look like when you put them together? Typically, we're going to have around 50 to 60 companies in a portfolio. We have some of our portfolios that are a little more concentrated, more on the 30 to 40 side. But as is widely known, you want to be more concentrated than diffuse. How do you think about position sizing? Position sizing is something that is going to be highly dependent on the type of company. So there's going to be certain companies that are stable compounders that are profitable And those you can size in ways that are very different from a company that, say, has a big binary event on the horizon. Those types of binary events are ones that can give you high blood pressure because they can make huge moves in one direction or another. As a rough rule of thumb, we would say that if you're going to deviate by more than 1% based on one position in your company, then you got to be really careful there. In other words, let's say you have a company, it's a 3% position, and you think it has a reasonable likelihood of losing half of its value at some catalytic event, say a clinical trial or FDA approval. Well, 3% is probably too big of a position that's probably not sized properly there. Something along those lines is appropriate for managing risk in ways that you and your investors can handle. Once you've built a portfolio, how do you think about ownership of those businesses consistent with the continued adoption of your values? Investing is ownership. Investing confers an ethical responsibility to the owner for the activities of the firm. Let's say I owned a corner store retail firm and people found out that the employees were trafficked from some other country. Well, that would be horrible and I would look bad as I should and I'd get in legal trouble and I, as the owner, would be culpable for the activities of that business. But then similarly, if I do really well and I'm adding a lot of value, people love the store and there's a sense of the community really appreciating it, well, then that redounds back to me as well. And I get a positive benefit from that. One of the things that we want to do as investors is say, okay, let's think now as an owner of the firm, not just as an investor, but as an owner. And just because it's a publicly traded stock, it's not different than if it was you and your buddy owning the corner retail store. We as investors have a surprising amount of power over the direction of the company. You know, that phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, the wallet is even mightier than the pen. And people pay very close attention. Governments, communities, people recognize that business is the lifeblood of any country, of any community. So I'm very, very excited about this. We want to stay engaged and closely bound up with our companies. We want to meet with them and ask them to consider these types of issues. We have basically codified this that we call RAISE. RAISE stands for Restore, Access, Innovate, Stewardship, and Ethics. And it's basically saying, okay, we want to have fair pricing. We want to have it so that investors are well compensated, that society is rewarded, that patients have access to these medications. It's going to be 
a group holistic effort. We want to be working in great cooperation with our peer investor groups. This is not a one firm heroic story. This is going to be something where we have to really lock arms with our fellow mutual funds and hedge funds and venture capital firms to do this well. We also think highly of what Peter Kolchinsky and RA Capital is doing with their No Patient Left Behind initiative. There's a couple of these types of movements that continue to gain steam so that we can advance these causes in the ways that investors can do far more skillfully and far more effectively than anybody else can. I'm curious in the competitive environment for these companies, take pricing as an example. You have a company who is not, let's say, maximizing what they might be able to do in the market. They're not trying to gouge consumers and they're competing against someone who is. How do you balance trying to do the right thing in a world where other people may not be? Ted, that's such a great question. And it's one that I think for so many people just dogs them in a hardball world. How does it look to actually compete and to be long-term successful? There's some very good examples of this that I'll point to here where doing the right thing, which has led to maybe short-term decisions that may not seem as profitable, have actually long-term redounded to the health of the company and the benefit of the company, as well as shareholders. So the example here that's a classic in my industry is that of ivermectin. So ivermectin is a medication that was discovered in the 1970s. Some scientists at Merck discovered that ivermectin was the cure for river blindness. So river blindness is a disease that affects particularly people in Africa and parts of Latin America. Terrible disease. It affects the poorest of the poor, people who can pay essentially little to nothing for their drugs. And so scientists at Merck figure out that one pill curing the condition, it's that good of a medication. And then all of a sudden realizing, wow, how in the world are we going to get people to pay for this? And they tried going through the WHO and other organizations and just didn't find funding for that. And Merck made the very interesting decision to actually give it away. They just said, you know what, we're out of the generosity of our heart and even at a cost to our organization, we're going to do that even though it doesn't make financially much sense at all. Now, I will be the first to say that this cannot be precisely measured. However, what happened with that move was that Merck became recognized as one of the most positive, ethical, virtuous companies to work at. And a lot of people to this day say, I'm at Merck because of what they did with ivermectin. Now, contrast that with other companies where they had huge hits in their own PR, customer loyalty, employee loyalty. There is a case to be made. And again, I'm not going to say that this is ironclad at all. But even that short-term decision that Merck made about ivermectin actually long-term benefited the shareholders of the company through these secondary benefits there. And I don't think people realize enough that a company's reputation and a company's sense of integrity is so important to be able to attract and retain the right employees, have the right loyalty with doctors. I often recommend an author whose name is Fred Reichheld. He's a management consultant at Bain, where he has shown that the companies that make the right decisions, even in the face of seemingly financially disadvantaged conditions for the short term, over the long haul, actually outperform their peers. And frankly, it's hard because sometimes we can't draw all the linear connections of this 
because there are these halo benefits. Sometimes we get so caught up with trying to build a model or focusing on just a five-year DCF or something like that, that we miss the bigger picture that actually might be the best long-term good for the company. And not to say even talk about all the people that were cured of river blindness because of Merck's decision that they could easily have shelved. I mean, the most sensible thing from a financial perspective would be like, okay, that's nice. Nobody can pay for this. Let's just throw it on the shelf and not spend the millions of dollars that it's going to take to get it out there. So there is an element of, let's call it faith. There is an element that we have to say, we can't always point to that well-ordered set of cause and effect that's going to come back to the company. And again, I want to stress, we are a competitive company ourselves. We want to beat our peers as much as we can. I'm saying this not as a person who's anti-competitive or anti-capitalist or anything like that. I'm saying this as a person who believes that business should be excellent and outperforming, but that sometimes making the right decision is going to cost you. And in surprising ways, those costs will actually be long-term value adds and blessings down the road in ways that it's hard to predict ex ante. I'm curious, when you run an organization with this passion for investing combined with this passion for values, what is the culture of Eventide like internally? We are very proud of our culture. One of the things that I think is so important is that you want to hire people for mission fit and for mission alignment, much more so than recruit people on financial generosity or something like that. You can do that. But in the end, what you're going to have is, to be somewhat crass, is a lot of mercenaries, people who are waiting for more pay at some other firm, and they're going to jump to there. And you're not going to get the kind of cohesive long-term family that you really want to have at a company. I'm really proud of the low turnover we've had, the fact that people can come here and have a great experience. We have done something which is from day one, when somebody starts the interview process, we're going to be having a really interesting set of conversations around values and around real situations that we have faced that it's going to be very illuminating. If you can get that fanatical belief in the mission of the company, if you can have people who rally around that as their first order, what gets them up in the morning, not so much going for a paycheck, then you will have a place where you are genuinely excited to be at. And I will say, to this day, here I am 15 years into Eventide, I am as or more excited to come into the office than I have ever been before. And I'm eager to get in. I'm eager to see my colleagues. I'm eager to be here because it just feeds on itself, right? Like when you get a lot of people who believe in that, it's just such a different environment than a lot of companies being these more mercenary style, financially oriented firms. So I would say it starts with a mission and flows down from that. Where do you want to take the business over the next couple of years? We would love to be the premier firm that offers excellence in values-based investing that's rooted in this love your neighbor, Judeo-Christian perspective. So right now, if you look at the percentage of assets that people have who are religious or values-inclined frameworks like that, it's certainly less than 1%. The field is in the early days of what hopefully will be a long-term movement. So that means that we have to cover a lot of asset classes. We have to be something where we can offer the full package to investors. And my hope is that 
over time, what we'll really do is be a part of getting people excited about business and investing to reclaim and to get people excited about the potential of business to fix a lot of the problems that we are facing today. That ought to be something that I hope will resonate, which is that if we want to be capital allocators in a world where there's still capital and capitalism, we have to realize that the tide is moving against us. There was a lot of stats that came out at the last presidential election cycle about people who favored socialism more than capitalism. You know, like it's not so clear that our current system is going to endure for 20, 30 more years. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. But it certainly can if we get back to this vision where people are authentically allocating capital to the businesses that are doing the best at value creation for its stakeholders. And if we can truly do that, people will sense it. You know, I think humans are remarkably good at sensing authenticity or not. We're pretty good at sensing people that care about us, that are really in it for our good. The public is pretty good at sensing when a business is doing the right thing and trying to serve it versus not. And I hope that we can be a part of offering these products, but more importantly, bringing this philosophy and this discourse back into America and hopefully beyond America so that we can create a bright future for our children and for their children. Finney, I want to ask you a couple of fun closing questions before we wrap up. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'll give the boring but true answer here, which is reading. My favorite hobby by a mile is reading. I spend many hours a day reading. It is something that shapes me, inspires me, forms me. That would easily be number one. Outside of that, maybe more exciting answers would be hiking and tennis would probably be my outdoor type activities. But even those are not quite at the level of reading that for me has been my favorite passion from when I was very small. What's your biggest pet peeve? I probably have thoughts 10 to 20 times a day about how short life is. For whatever reason, that's how I'm wired. I tend to think and count a lot and think like, how many years do I have left? How many weeks? That sort of activity, which I know can be morbid, but for me, it's motivating. So I walk around with this acute sense of the scarcity of time and how precious time is. Because of that, the pet peeves that I have are those that contradict my use of time. So I hate most meetings that I get dragged into that there's no way we needed to spend an hour doing this or a lot of small talk, this kind of thing. There's the general category of these self-imposed time wasters that we spend. They're just awful. I think that if we were to take an accurate inventory of the time that we spent over the last week, month, year, and laid it out, we would just be horrified. And we would say like, what are we doing with our most scarce and precious resource, which is not money, it's time. So I would say, yeah, that domain is for me, the source of my pet peeves. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? First, my PhD advisor was a huge person in my life who formed me in very powerful ways. His name is Stuart Schreiber. I still feel very indebted to him. He's a legend in my field of chemistry and chemical genetics. What I learned from him was how important it was not just to be a great thinker and a great scientist, but how to communicate well. And I can still remember, I thought I was a good writer before I joined his lab and I wrote my first paper and I gave it to him. 
and he gave me back his comments and the whole thing was marked up, you know, red and all that. And I just thought like, oh man. And I had to rewrite that thing despite what I thought was good at a first draft. And I realized that I wasn't as good of a writer as I thought. And he taught me a lot about communication and confidence and the value of integrating being a great communicator with being a great scientist. And if you don't have the communication side, it'll put a lid on your ability to succeed. The second person would be Nick Galakados. He was one of the managing directors at Claris Ventures, now at Blackstone. And he was the person who really found me and took me under his wing in the realm of biotech investing. He's won the Midas Touch Award for biotech venture capital. He taught me how to diligence people and the value of people. So I learned from him that if you really want to diligence somebody well, learn how to go out to lunch and dinner with not just that person, but the associates of those people to really understand who they are. It's amazing what you can learn over a meal that you wouldn't learn over Zoom and just how to put it all together. He was a great influence on me. What's the best advice you ever received? What comes to my mind here is something that I say a lot, which is that you're only as sick as your deepest secret, meaning that a lot of us can live these lives that are seemingly put together. You can go to a good school, you can have great accomplishments, all these things. But there's like this 2% of who you are that it's hard to get on the table. It's hard to really like talk about that. And these dark corners in our lives are the areas that actually hinder us the most. And I was given the advice to every single week to get with a small group, two or three people, and just put out the good, the bad, and the ugly in front of this group and learn how to process it and work together through that. If you can get that last 2% out on the table and come to a place of resolution and peace there, it is amazing how that will just unlock a whole set of potentials that you didn't even know were there. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, are living lives that are much more bounded than they need to be simply because they're harboring secrets they've never really talked through and worked through. Finney, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I often have this picture of, I wish I could talk to my 10-year-old self and just sit for a couple of hours and give a lot of advice to, so it's hard to distill down. For the sake of choosing one thing here, one item would be go deep before going wide. Especially if you go to good schools, you are encouraged to have these applications where you're doing music and sports and get a good GPA and all these things, and you're this renaissance person. And of course, we know that so much of that is just resume building. And in the end, most people have a much more limited number of true excellence areas and passions. But what happens from a very young age is that that philosophy actually messes people up in very profound ways. Because what you end up doing is you end up with this state where you're overstretched, you've got way more than you should actually be signed up for, and things fall through cracks. And you live lives that you're disorganized in terms of piles of paper, in terms of commitments, in terms of all kinds of obligations. And the author, David Allen, who's pretty well known for his book, Getting Things Done, talks about how a lot of us, our psychic state looks like Pigpen, that Charlie Brown character, you know, who's got like all the dust and dirt twirling around him. That that's actually like how a lot of us are in our minds, where we're not in places of order and peace and rest. And these habits that we get taught from high school and beyond stay with us for decades to come. 
What's way better, and unfortunately not as incentivized in our world though, is to do way less, but to do a limited number of things very, very deeply and well. And if you do it deep, eventually it'll be wide. Unfortunately, our world is just not properly instructed where that's the right incentive. So I would definitely encourage my younger self to learn that lesson much earlier. Benny, thanks so much for sharing this fascinating blend of values and investing. Thank you, Ted. It's great to be with you. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at capitalallocators.com to apply for one of the slots. Thank you.